And yet people don't do that. They don't look at it that way. And they go, I need to save money. This is the best way to do it. And what they did was they actually paid to go to work there. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Shannon Robnett. Shannon, how are you doing today? Good, Todd. Yourself? I'm doing well. And uh, Shannon is with uh, Shannon Robnett Industries. He's a, a developer, real estate developer, syndicator uh, with a main focus on multifamily industrial real estate in the greater Boise, Idaho area. Uh, been involved in the Boise market for over 35 years, which is really cool. I want to dive in. Most people that I talk to, Shannon, you know, have been in the industry for, you know, shoot, some of them like one, two, three years. But <laughs> Isn't that people, amazing? Yeah, yeah. Most people haven't been into it for more than, you know, 15 years. Uh, and sometimes they get, you know, it gets a little wild and they've been it for uh, 20 years. So, so talking to somebody who's been in it for a long time uh, is is really helpful, I think, for a lot of people, uh, that, especially in navigating times like today. Um, your second generation builder, developer, fourth generation realtor, um, been involved and in a lot. So with that said, Shannon, give our listeners a bit more about your background and we'll dive in. Well, you know, Todd, I was born into a real estate family. My father was a builder and a developer. My mother was a third generation realtor. I had my license for a while. Uh, my son uh, has followed in those footsteps. So there's five generations of, of real estate sales in our family. And I really grew up, honestly, at poor dad's table. You know, everybody's read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I grew up not being able to, you know, get the nice jeans and and driving my mom's old Cadillac to school. And, you know, that was, I never knew my parents had money. They, they had these buildings, they had these things we always had to go work on, um, you know, and, and part of that 35 years in the real estate business is my indentured servitude to them, right? Uh, because that was always what Saturdays were for. And I watched my parents retire at 50, and I was well on my way. I'd, I'd started a career building houses. I didn't like homeowners, so I switched into the commercial world. We built police stations, uh, medical facilities, schools, gymnasiums, um, you know, industrial complexes, developed subdivisions and things like that. And I watched my parents retire with cash flow at 50. And in the last 23 years, their lifestyle has not changed because their rents have continued to go up. And so in 2001, I built my own industrial complex <clears throat> and I scraped together all the money I had, put everything into it, uh, you know, really got, got critical path on doing that. But I also got critical on my cash flow and my business. And so after that, I began to partner with single check writers on deals, a guy that would have, you know, a million, million and a half to park somewhere. We'd do a deal. We'd both make money. And I just saw that as that progressed over the years, um, I was running out of people that could write the checks that I needed. The last deal I did was in 2017 with a family office that wrote a check for $19 million. And I realized that it was going to be a lot easier to aggregate $100,000, $250,000, dollars check writers into a pool than it was going to be to find another $19 million source of funds. 
And so I began to <clears throat> explore the world of syndicating capital. So I kind of came into the whole thing backwards and with, you know, over 26 years of experience building, owning, running, managing uh, multifamily and industrial I had those parts of the business down, but the, but the syndicating capital has been something we've done over the last four years. Uh, and in that time period, we've raised about $65 million and, and really kind of been able to take our business uh, to the next level in the fact that we no longer are a for hire construction company. And we have projects from Washington to Florida now and um, are continuing to uh, expand that portfolio for our investors. Uh, that's great. I got I got a lot of questions on on what you said there. I, I like the your dad. It's funny. So your dad was uh, mom, mom and dad uh, mm -hmm. did did really well, right? But they, they didn't. They did. They didn't show you that. You didn't know <clears throat> no, that. no. <laughs> I mean, you know, like if if Mercedes Benz just came out with a new model, yeah, of car, my dad would get really excited because next year the old model that had the different headlights in it and the different grill was going to lose substantial value. So he could buy one. Right. Yeah. He was always the guy that was just out of the money as far as what people thought was, you know, was flash was, was the thing. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, he was, I mean, when he retired at 50, he retired on all cash, you know, he was completely debt free, uh, whether you agree with that or not. Um, that's the way it's they an amazing feat though. Yeah, completely well, and, free and have a lot of assets. And see, the thing is, he's the son of a union mechanic, right? He comes from, there's no financial background in his lineage. I mean, there's none. And so to be able to see him and my mother do that um, uh, was, was impressive, you know, and yeah. they, every winter they go buy a house somewhere and remodel it because they don't just sit still and then they sell it and move on to another, another nice warm location and do the same thing. Right. I mean, old, old people in real estate, they, they never die. They just takes, take different, different projects, you know? That's great. That's good. That, that is something I've never thought about doing when I decide at some point in time, maybe if ever to retire is like, Hey, we're just, let's, let's go to, Phoenix and let's buy a house and let's remodel yeah. it. And let's you know, see most people start with we'll the fix and that. flip, right? Most great. most people start there. My dad is retiring into the fix and he's flip, right? And, flip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and he's living in it too. Which yeah. Is even more yeah. He's calling it his primary residence, you oh, know. That's funny. That's funny. So did you so you got raised like that? Uh did you raise your kids like that? You know, to a degree I did. My son followed me into the business. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I raised my kids that my responsibility to them was to make them uh, responsible adults. Right. Yeah. And so they would work on the jobs. They were, I did some things different than my parents did. I always paid my children. Right. I wanted them to, to understand the value of their hard work. Right. Mm -hmm. You can make money doing this where my parents, they didn't necessarily do that uh, right, wrong or indifferent. Um, but then my kids could use that money to buy the things that they wanted. Right. There's things that I, I provided for them. I provided the necessities, but the things that they wanted, they were able to buy with their hard work. And so all of my kids have always had jobs since they were 15 years old. Um, and so that part, I think I've done fairly well. They don't all have the love of real estate that I have. My oldest does, um, but um, you know they're 
they're their own people. And I, and I think that they are, um, you know, they're, they're doing very well. Um, they, they understand what hard work does. They understand what real assets are versus, um, you know, cash or, or stocks or things like that. They understand those things. And I think that's, that's the goal. Yeah. There's always that, you know, I, I have this debate, internal debate. Um, my wife and I talk about it too, is like, you know, both of us were raised in very middle class or maybe lower middle class. My wife, probably very much lower middle class families, uh, didn't have a lot of money. You know, I was getting hand-me-downs for my clothes and type of thing. And, and, um, you know, my parents truly didn't have the money. So it's not, it's mm-hmm. not like maybe like your situation where your parents just didn't spend the money, didn't show you the money they had it, but they, you know, but now we are sitting here, you know, we're still, our kids are, um, 10 and 14 and we've never really shown them the money either. And, you know, I always kind of go back and forth. Is that the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? Doesn't matter. Um, it's just interesting hearing how other people were raised you know, and, and maybe how they raise their kids. So I don't know there's a right or wrong. I think it really probably depends on how you talk about the money too. Yeah. Well, and, and in my opinion, and again, that's only what it is. I I think that the value that you're trying to teach your children is what security is, right? What is going to provide for them in life and having a new car, boy, that sure is nice. I've had a couple in my time and they're really, really nice. But after a month, they're no longer a new car. You've still got either the equity tied up or you've, you know, you've got an asset that is depreciating versus an asset that is appreciating, you know? And I think that, you know, it's a very different thought process. I mean, even the way I sent my kids to college was different, right? I mean, most parents, they save and they, they, they put all the money away so the kid can go have a four-year degree and not have to worry about things. I didn't do it like that. I told my kids when they said they wanted to go to college, I did not go. Uh, well, I went for a semester, but they kept wanting me to come back and take tests and all that. And that wasn't, like, wasn't nah, that wasn't, wasn't my jam, man. <laughs> wasn't my jam. So I told my, my kids when it was time to go to college, I said, great, let's go learn about lending. And so we went down and we got the loans for their student loans. And now they understand that they have obligations. They are pledging their future earnings for something today. And then when they're done with college, my agreement with them is after you work in the field of study for two years, and we did uh, with both of my children that went to college, or actually all three of my children have have gone to college. uh, When they're done with that, you're going to have to pay back this money. So let's look at what you're picking. So we don't wind up with a liberal arts major that pays $32,000 a year trying to pay back 60. We've actually run the math on what you're going to be required to pay them. And are you going to be able to afford that? Right. Right. So we created a future budget. And this is just like you would set up a business, right? You create a future budget. I'm going to make $50,000 a year with this degree. Um, and you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. In fact, I took one of my daughters to meet with an oral surgeon who's an investor of mine. And we asked the question, what does it cost to become a dentist? And he said about 200,000. I said, well, what does a dentist make? He says about 250 a year. I said, well, that's pretty good. I said, what about an orthodontist? And he said, uh, well, they make about 350 to 500,000. I said, what does that cost? He says about 400. 
So, so okay, so we can re, we can calculate a return on investment. I said, what does an oral surgeon make? And he says, well, anywhere from four to seven hundred. And I said, what'd you spend? He said, I spent four hundred and fifty thousand in seven years of my life. So we were able to actually get a calculation of what college costs, something that no counselor does, right. and see that this is what you can do if you apply this time and money. So you're putting in an upfront cost of seven years and $400,000. And then you're getting a long-term benefit over the next 20 years of your career that's going to make you this kind of a dividend. And it was very clear that the specialist was definitely the way to go. The question was, do you want to go that deep into it? But then after two years of working in that field of service, I came to each one of my children and I said, okay, here's your debt. And per my agreement, you've made your payments. You understand what that obligation is and how that works. Now I'm going to pay off the rest of that. But I can do one of two things. I can give you the money to pay that off and the money is gone. And so is the $500 or $600 a month you've been paying. Or we can invest that and I can show you how to take that money and make $500 a month and pay your bill. And then when you're done paying the bill, you now still have that, that asset, that $50,000 that you paid to go to college or $60,000 you paid to go to college. You still have that and can now start a business. You can buy a home, you can do whatever. And that has completely changed how my, my kids think about dad and his advice on investing. I now have investment conferences with my daughter where she's calling me going, hey, dad, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Because she now knows that that money has to work for her. And she's understood how that is, is her money that goes to work for her every day while she also goes to work. And she's as diligent about that, which is the start of a business mindset. Shannon, we weren't going to talk about this, right? This wasn't pre-planned, but I love the direction uh, we went. And I think that two really awesome things that you did, for, first of all, uh, you did a pro forma. Like yeah. You literally did a pro forma for the kids, showing them. You guys went through and looked at what is it, what's this going to look like? So that's number one. They learned how to build a budget, build a pro forma. Uh, number two is the investing. Look, yeah, you go ahead and pay this off or we can just make 500 bucks a month on your investments and that can pay off your loan. And by the way, when the loan is paid off, we're sitting good because you've got a, you've got an investment that's still paying you 500 bucks a month. Well, and you know, Todd, most of us think that we have to get to this certain point to start investing, right? right. We've got to get, we've got to get a hundred thousand dollars, right? We've yeah. got to get a 720 or 740 credit score. Yeah. You know, we've got yeah. to do these things, but you don't, you, you can start investing. Absolutely. And, and then a lot of people look at debt as poison, right? But if you can take and invest $400,000 into a career that makes you $700,000 a year for, for 20 years, that is, a, that is a really good investment because somebody's willing to partner with you to advance your education. It's no different yeah. than an apartment complex, right? Yep. You're going to buy this building and you can pay cash for one or you can leverage and use the bank and buy four, right? Yep. 
And people forget that. And they, 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 I see a lot of people are trying to change their whole way of thinking to become investors on large scale assets when it really can start very, very simply with, with very small things. And I think that that is kind of how I've tried to show my kids debt can be a good thing when the pro forma says so. Uh, and you should always invest in yourself because you are the one asset that you're going to be living with for the rest of your life. You can't sell that, right? And, and the third thing is you just need to make sure that what you're putting your efforts into are going to return a profit to you before you do them, instead of getting three quarters of the way into it and then realizing, gosh, this was a fun idea, but it's not profitable. And I've just wasted two years of my life chasing this dream. Yeah. Well, and it, Honestly, it's a tough decision when these kids are 18 to figure out what they're going to do the rest of their life, but that's, that's a whole nother topic. Um, Shannon, you just talked about debt and debt can be a good thing. Um, we, we're in a weird debt environment, right? The, uh, Fed fund rate has skyrocketed, um, went from essentially zero to, uh, five, went up 500 basis points, right? Uh, treasuries, yep. treasuries uh, skyrocketed. Now they're dropping like crazy. Um, you know, so it's, it's just a weird environment. You hear uh, so much on the news about people getting, you know, caught with this debt, especially commercial real estate, uh, bridge loans, all that kind of stuff. Anyways, how are you navigating? What are your rules for debt and how are you navigating this? Because you're in doing construction. Oftentimes those are um, floating debt loans. I don't know if that's what you're doing, but the, let's talk rules for debt first, I guess. And then we'll, we'll dive into how you're navigating what's going on. Well, you know, history is a great teacher uh, and karma will keep you coming back around until you learn the lesson, right? <laughs> uh, but I did my first real estate deal for myself at, at 9%. And mm -hmm. I've never seen debt as cheap as we saw it. And that in, was in 2001 when you- 2001, yeah. Trail. But in 20 and 21, we saw debt that we probably will never see again in our yeah. lifetime. Yeah, it was and ridiculously cheap. And it, 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 you know, if you talk to somebody that got started in 2019, 2020, they didn't even know what DSCR is, right? That's <laughs> debt service coverage ratio, right? And we always used to have to worry about that. Um, and you're right, in construction, the debt floats, right? So when I underwrite, even, you know, I, we're, we're getting ready to exit a deal right now, 190 unit apartment complex uh, that we built. It was an appreciation. Uh, phase one was an appreciation play for the investors. Um, and when I look back at how I underwrote that in 19, I underwrote it with the assumption of a seven and a half percent takeout loan. And I mm -hmm. underwrote that at a five and a half cap, um, which was, you know, that's been a pretty good number for apartments for the last 10 years, 15 years. And here we are at those numbers. Now I could have underwritten it um, with, I could have changed my underwriting to, to a four cap. I could have, you right. know, changed my debt assumptions to a five and it would have looked a lot better on paper, but the thing well, that you've got to look at. that's what was happening, quite frankly, you know, things were selling at four caps and absolutely five, I mean, five, to, that's, that's aggressive, you know, debt, that was, I mean, we, I've got a loan knocked in at 2.7%. Right. You know? 
Right. And I, I probably, I mean, I don't know that I'd loan my brother money at that rate. And I love that guy. <laughs> right. But, but the reality is you can take advantages of, of benefits the market hands you, but you have to plan for the historical averages. Right. Yeah. And okay. so when I look at things, I look at it and go, man, if I've got to tweak this thing down to a four cap to make it work, I'm not going to do it. And when I go in and build a project, I underwrite it to an eight cap. If I can't break even at an eight cap, I'm not going to do it. If I can't make my investors return on capital in that range, I'm not going to do it because there's so much that can happen over the next 24 to 36 months that can really change the way things happen that could leave you in a bad situation. We're hearing about that in the news and that's unfortunate, but the reality is it's not unexpected. Right. Those of us that have been doing it a while, when people when I I mean, there was a lot of underwriting that I saw come across my desk that I just shook my head at. And I was like, how in the world can you can you even think to underwrite at a four cap purchase and a three and a half cap sale? How come you're not? I mean, I get it. Maybe the numbers make sense with two and a half percent debt. You're buying at a four cap. But why are you underwriting that you're selling at a four cap? Why aren't you underwriting that you're selling at a five? Where is your life is going to go to hell at a handbasket exit plan? How are you protecting your investors? And especially when you step into the role of syndicator, I will lose my money before I will lose my investors money. And my documents are written that way because there is a lot that goes into handling other people's money. Yeah. And you have to be able to look at it from more than a spreadsheet point of view, but you have to look at how are we going to get out of this if things change? And fixed rate debt is a great way to hedge against that. But even now at 2.3% or 2.7%, whatever you have, you're still probably projecting a different cap rate should you exit today. You're, you would be realizing a different cap rate today than what was available then. And so even yeah. in that, it changes. And... Um, so I've just seen that investors, they want a solid return. They want something in that, you know, uh, 14 to 17, 18% range. And when you surprise them and give them a 39% return, they're never mad, Todd. They're yeah. never mad. Yeah, they're not disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of good points there. You know, it's, if you underwrite conservative like that, so, so, uh, bring us back to bring you back to that deal. You know, we underwrote that at uh, refinancing at 7% as well. Well, we refinanced at 2.7%. Mm -hmm. um, we underwrote an exit cap at eight, an eight cap. Okay? Mm -hmm. Well, we haven't exited. We're, oh. We don't plan on exiting, but we got to, and here, here's a perfect, perfect example. So we got a broker price opinion on that property. Uh, $22 million. That was about a year ago. A mm -hmm. year and change ago, the NOIs increased drastically. Yet, the valuation, the broker price opinion, now has decreased by four million dollars. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say amazing. it's probably gone down twenty percent, yeah. but it's it's because your broker price opinion is based on what the next guy is going to have to do. Right, exactly. the next guy that comes in, he's not going to get that two point seven five percent. Right, right. There's no way the bank's going to want him to assume that they want to, they want to write the new loan at six or six and a half. And so, you know, while it would have been nice, Todd, knowing that it was going to go from 22 to 18, 
it would have been nice to sell at 22, knock on the guy's door at 18 and, and buy it back. We don't have that luxury of timing the market. Right. And if you think you're going to time the market, you're on a fool's errand. Yep. You will never get that perfectly right consistently. So what you have to do is just like you did, you're and and, and we see this all the time. You know, the, the news is talking about people that are in cash crunches and their loans are coming due on their short-term debt. But one of the things that they're failing to say is that a lot of these people have executed that business plan perfectly. They bought the units that needed the rehab. They rehabbed yeah. them all. They spent the money. They stayed on budget. They, they got the $300 in increased revenues. However, at where lending is at now, they still need to bring cash to the table right. to get into long-term debt. And it's going to cost them millions of dollars in interest that they didn't have to pay had they got in in that 2.75. Right. And so those are going to be lessons learned for people. Um, but there's a lot of that debt that is a time bomb because they came in, they bought a, uh, an $80 million deal. They put $20 million down, executed the business plan perfectly. Their DSCR now says that they can do a, a refi, but it's a cash in refi for another 15 million. And their investors are going, well, wait a minute, what's that do to our returns? And, you know, so, so they're in that position of, do we sell and lose money or do we find a way to restructure this? And it's always, it's always an afterthought and it's a, and it's a bad place to be, honestly. Yeah. It's a bad place to be, right. You never want to be in that position. Um, you know, unfortunately it happens. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I was talking with a, a gentleman who's been in the industry for a very long time, uh, like 50 years and, and been syndicating it that whole time, uh, it basically said, look, you will lose investors money. There's just no, there's just no question. Like he's like, if you're in the industry long enough and you do enough deals, you're eventually going to lose people money. But he's like, it just, it, you know, basically all about how you act when you do that, how you communicate when you do that and how often you do that. Too. Yeah. It's like, just don't do it. Yeah. Um, but regardless, uh, there's, that's going to be happening to some people, and and unfortunately, um, but you've made a lot of good points there. Why why did you switch from using a family office to syndicating? Because you said you you did a pretty good sized deal with a family office. Why not just continue down that path? Well, a couple of reasons why. Um, you know, the family office, they were amazing people. And I got to tell you, one of the best partnerships I ever had. But let's just be honest, Todd, they were in control. I had one source of funds. And if I wanted to do, and this particular family office had eight members to it. Um, so it was, there was, you know, there was a lot of pull on where the money goes and what to do next and, and everything. Um, but if they didn't like this particular deal, I didn't have another source. And so what I really began doing was aggregating because I really believe there's, there's three types of investors. There's those that want appreciation. You know, these are people usually uh, 20 to 40 years old. You know, they're starting out with a small amount. They need to grow it into something. Then they hit the, the, those that, you know, in the thirties to fifties, their career's going very well. They want tax benefits, right? They could care less if it makes some money because they can save 37%. Uh, with yep. the IRS. And that is a bigger number than what you can provide. And then the third one is the 50 to 70 year olds. 
who are wanting cash flow. They're done with the game. They've appreciated it. They've tax protected it. And now they're here to reap the benefits of it. And all they want is cash flow. Yep. Those three investors want different products. You're not going to be able to find that all in one. Well, my family office was only interested in appreciation products. They didn't really need the tax benefits. They had other things worked out for that. And so all I could ever do was build apartment complexes with them. And then when I wanted to hold them long-term, I couldn't, that wasn't their, what they wanted to do. And so then I had to go find a source for that. I had to go aggregate capital for that. And I hadn't done that. And so I just had to evolve and I still have a wonderful relationship. In fact, the head of the family office and I are having uh, our annual uh, Yuletide celebration lunch. Uh, you know, we're getting together. It's all, a bit, I mean, he's such a busy guy. We get together about once a year, but um, you know, having different pockets that you can pull from having different people that want different things allows you to look at other assets that you may not have been able to. You know, not everybody wants a value add. It's 20, you know, 12 to 24 months for that plane gets off the ground and starts kicking off cash flow. Um, you know, so you just need to have different sources. I, I appreciate you going through kind of that hierarchy or, you know, that not hierarchy, but that level, you know, right. People want different things and it's not that everybody doesn't fit perfectly into those buckets that you mentioned. You know, some people that are, I do talk to some younger people that all they want is cash flow, right? I do talk to some very young people who only want the tax benefits, you know, so, so sometimes mm -hmm. it, but yeah, for yeah. the most part, you're right. Like younger people, they're looking for appreciation, and the older you get, the more we're just we just want that cash flow because we want to retire eventually. We want to know that we've got X amount of cash flow coming in our bank account every single month. That's what we're looking for. Uh, where the younger person's like, I don't care about cash flow. I just want well, to make as and, much money you know, as I possibly can. Todd, you get those younger people that come to you and say, Well, I want cash flow, right? And I always ask them, Do you really? Really and I don't need to know how much money you have, but will a seven percent return on that money support your lifestyle? Yeah. And they go, uh, well, no. And I said, well, then we want to appreciate that yeah. so that now we get to that number where you've got enough that that 7% yeah, exactly. is enough to fund your lifestyle and get you to walk away from your job. Oh, okay. And, and a lot of people are programmed just like, you know, when people want to get involved in, in real estate, a lot of times they feel like they have to start with wholesaling. Then they have to do single family. Then they've yeah. got to do the, you know, the, the, the house hack. And you don't have to do that. You may be well off to do a pro forma of where you make your money, and you may be better off to continue to put in the time at your job, pick up some overtime, do whatever, because you're well paid at what you do, and leave the house hacking to the people that are really good at that. Yeah, 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 that's, and that's, that leads into the syndication portion is like, you're doing syndication, because mm -hmm. there's people out there that are better suited to keep going with their job, like the um, oral surgeon. Right? Yeah. yeah. He can go ahead and quit being an oral surgeon and start buying apartment buildings. But is that really what he should be doing? No, he's making right. really good money doing what he does. Right. He probably still enjoys it. So why not take those profits right. invest passively in a syndication? Because most people that invest in real estate want to be passive. That's the yeah. reason why they do it. And then yeah. they start buying the duplexes and the single family homes. I just had this conversation three days ago with a guy who's got millions of dollars and is wondering, 
you know, single family homes, short-term rentals, which one should I do? And I'm like, you're crazy, man. You know, yeah. I, I don't think you really realize what you're trying to do. You're trying to create a second job, but you right. think it's passive. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, look, and I do this every year and I would encourage your listeners to do this. Take your tax return or take your K1 or your W2, whatever you get, take that, the amount of money you made last year and divide it by 52 weeks in a year and divide it by 40 hours a day because you got some passive, you got some, you know, some, all the things that you did in your life that generated money. Yeah. That is your hourly rate. And you need to be looking at it and going, you know what? I can go do yard work. Not that that's not a good idea, but if you're doing yard work and you can go to work for 95 bucks an hour, you're losing money. And you need to look at it that way. If you're sitting there with a couple million dollars and you go, well, I could go, you know, buy duplexes. I could go buy this. I could go do that. You can. And then you get into everybody says, well, I need to manage it. So I know what's going on. Really? If you're making $150 an hour and you've got a property manager that wants to charge you $200 a, a door to manage your property, you can't possibly make money at that. Right. And yet people don't do that. They don't look at it that way. And they go, I need to save money. This is the best way to do it. And what they did was they actually paid to go to work there. They actually are now losing money to do that task. Well, I think Shannon, what happens a lot is people buy that duplex. They have the intention of having the property management company on it, but then they realize they're actually not cash flowing because they didn't know how to run a real pro forma. They ran a, a pro forma, but it, it's not real, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody can make a pro forma look profitable. So oh, you can pencil whip it till it tells you anything you want. Oh yeah, well we're gonna make a thousand bucks a month on this thing. Well, then yeah. expenses actually happen and mm -hmm. one resident one one of your tenants doesn't pay rent one yep. month and you know all that kind of stuff that you and i have dealt with and all of a sudden you're not making money so you have to fire the property management company and now you're you now you're working for 20 bucks an hour and right like, and that's i think that's that's a beginner's mistake you know because now you're not able to go look for other real estate you're not able to look for tax solutions you're not able to do the things that are necessary to build your business. You're now tying on to that first mistake and auguring completely in to that and paralyzing yourself because now every bit of time, money, and energy is focused on the problem you created instead of being able to stand above it and go, okay, what's the solution to this? I'm $300 a month short. I make $100 an hour. I'm going to put in three extra hours at work and I'm going to be fine. I'm going to go find another client. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to solve that problem the fastest way. They look at it and go, no, I got to fire property management because then I'm profitable again. In theory, but not in practicality. Right. Exactly. Um, Shannon, what's a mistake that you've made and how have you learned from how you can pass down some wisdom to our, our listeners? Oh, gosh. Uh, just one, right? Um, just one. <laughs> You know, I think that that uh, that solution that or that that problem that I just talked about. You know, you you create a problem. You know, you you um, uh, you know, I've done I've done deals where I didn't have all the numbers in, right? Um, I didn't have everything considered, and I found myself behind the eight ball, and so I I went cheap. Um, I, I cut corners on the quality of the product that we were putting out. So then what happened was the tenants that that attracted were 
not in the pro forma. So I, I created that downward spiral by trying yeah. to fix the problem instead of, instead of just looking at it and going, Hey, I overpaid for this thing. Uh, so now instead of the kind of return that I thought we're going to wind up with, you know, 15 or 20% less return, but we're still going to be there. And, and, and I didn't look at the long game. I looked at the yeah. very short, you know what? We're not doing granite countertops. We're going to do for Micah. We're going to do this. We're going to, you know, do this. We're not going to, you know, redo this part of it. We're just going to paint it. And those kind of things led to hundred dollars less. And that hundred dollars less on, you know, 36 units added up. And then, you know, the, what I did was, was by only looking at the immediate problem, I compounded my problem. Instead of stepping back and go, what is the end game? So I got to put another 125 or $150,000 into this deal that I had not accounted for. Had I really stepped into it and, and done the math, I would have seen that that $150,000 would more than make up for the path I took that cost yeah. us more than that. Um, and all it did was it lengthened the runway uh, from the time we got into the deal till the time we got out at, at where we thought we needed to be. And that was a learning curve that I paid for. And I didn't just pay the day that I made the decision. I paid for the next three and a half years, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's doing the something. best thing in business or real estate, right? You make right. a mistake and it's not like you just pay for it that one day for the most part, you're paying for it for, it's like something from time. your childhood that your mom <laughs> continues to remind you about, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you will pay for that stupid mistake forever. And you know, you can get yourself out of them, but you really need to look at what your long-term solution is to the short-term problem you have. Yeah. Yeah. How much of an overage do you put in your construction budget? Like how much fluff do you put in there when you're looking at a budget uh, and trying to nail down your construction cost? Do you have a formula that you you use? Well, we, I mean, we start with, there's, there's a couple things we do. We, we start with a 7% uh, contingency. So okay. uh, we're getting ready to start a, a, a project that's uh, uh, $30 million. So we've got 2.1 built into that. But then the other thing that I do, Todd, is, is when I get all done, if my numbers look too good, I will begin to dial that down to an expectation that I can live with. Because, yeah. and what I mean by that is, is if this project looks like I can make you know, with the, with the proper underwriting, with everything considered, um, it looks like I can make 25 or 28%. I'll start dialing that backwards to look more like 17 to 19%. So I'll add money to the budget because I would rather have capital laying around, um, you know, and, and not need it. The other thing that I do to protect my investors is when I bid the project, if it's a project that we're constructing, I sign a GMAX contract on it. That's a guaranteed maximum price. So if I tell my investors, we're going to build this for $30 million, we're going to build it for $30 million or I'm going to write the check. And the reason that I do that is because why should my investors be penalized for my stupidity? I could go out into the marketplace and I could get that GMAX contract from another contractor, right? And so we really work hard to make sure that the fixed cost is the fixed cost. Yeah. So, and we look at contingency as a, as a investor pool. So if we don't use all the contingency, it's a benefit to the investor. If we do use all the contingency, it was 
accounted for. And if we need more than the contingency, it's not a penalty to the investor. It's a penalty to me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and that drives you to be more conservative too. hundred percent. Because what, boy, I mean, 30, $30 million, if you're off by a small percentage that adds up pretty quickly, you know, yeah. all of a sudden you're, you're penalized millions of dollars potentially just because mm-hmm. you were off by just a few percent. Yeah. So it makes you think, Hey, I gotta, I gotta think about this really hard. I can't miss. Um, I, I like that a lot. Um, protecting your investors, right? You, so your investors are protected by that max contract, but it also makes you think very thoroughly about what you're doing and, and how you're doing it. So, well, the other um, thing that we do with, with the protection of the investors, you know, I invest 5% of my own capital in the LP stack. So yeah. if we're raising $5 million, I'm in for my, my 5%. The, the other thing is the way that our documents are written. And a lot of people don't understand how that GPLP portion gets paid out, but we, we have a true waterfall and it comes out that the investor gets hundred percent of their capital back and then they get their preferred return. And then I get my capital back and then I get my preferred return. And then we go into the waterfall, right? Yep. A lot of people have been doing this 70, 30 split. You know, the problem with that is in this economy, some people are selling because the GP wants to get a paycheck and even though they said they were going to make 20%, they make 15, the GP still gets paid. Well, I don't believe that's the right way to do it because you hired me when you went into partnership with me to be your guide, to be the Sherpa that makes sure we get there. And if I can't return those kind of numbers, I shouldn't be getting an equal reward with you, right? And so I think a lot of people don't understand that because in business, you wouldn't allow them to... I'm going to put up all the money or the majority of the money. You're going to do the work and you're going to get paid regardless. But a lot of the documents that people have signed are just like that. Yeah. Make sure you understand that split and how it's being, how it's actually being ran so that you as an investor are getting the money that you put in and it's not the GP that may be messed up. Right. You don't want to, and and even if they didn't mess up, you just don't want a GP that's highly incentivized to not look after your money. Right. Right. I think that's the biggest thing is, is your money the most important money in that capital stack or are they incentivized to sell? Are they incentivized to, you know, hold for some reason? Are they incentivized to do it, you know, versus, versus what's best for the investment? Um <clears throat> Man, I got a lot more questions I want to ask you, but we do have to wrap up. Um, what's a what's a habit, a, maybe a daily habit that that you think is really important to your success? You know, I think I think the most important daily habit you can do is take the time to protect your mindset. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but there's so much you know, let's just be honest. If you're running a business of any kind, if you're if you're the manager in a department, you're the glorified problem solver. You're the glorified babysitter. Yeah. And if you're yeah. not protecting that mindset, it's very easy for you to come in having a great day and you to leave having a rotten day, mm. go home, kick the dog, yell at the kids, 
and then you're ready for a rotten day tomorrow that continues that downward spiral. But if you take five minutes, 10 minutes, and just practice centering your mind, and I know this may not be investing advice, but it, it truly will make you money. Center yourself, look at what you have to be grateful for, look at what you're trying to accomplish and refocus your energy into the positive things and ignore the negative things. You'll find that 95% of people, at least that I've met, that are really killing it in business and in life have that positive mindset. They are grateful yeah. people. And yeah. it's because they they treat you you become what you feel. And if you feel pissed off, you're going to become pissed off and everybody around you is going to know it and they're going to feel it. If you're grateful, everybody's going to know and feel that too. And stay away from the garbage, right? Yeah. There, there's so much crap out there. And if you're Absolutely. consuming all of that, that's yep. how you're going to feel and that's how you're going to act. That's If you want to achieve beyond what everybody else achieves, beyond what the 95% of this, you know, country's world, whatever achieves, you can't do what everybody else does. No. Everybody else is listening to the news and listening to all the complaining, the moaning and all that kind of crap. If you're doing that, if you're listening to that, if you're getting sucked into it, you're going to get the same results. Absolutely. hundred so, percent. Um, You do industrial and retail, um, what I guess what is there a flavor right now? What's what's the flavor uh, we do today? industrial, we don't do retail. Sorry, not, um, not retail. I meant I meant multifamily. Multifamily retail came out of my mouth. Um, well, I said multifamily yeah, in my brain. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. <laughs> uh you know, one of the things that that has become, I mean, over the last couple of years, multifamily has been the darling child, and it's it's right. a little bit overbought. Um, yeah. we I've done industrial most of my career. And that's kind of like the bond of real estate, right? Mm -hmm. It trades at a higher cap rate, which means there's more cash flow on the onset. It's a triple net lease in 99% of the cases, yeah. which means that the tenant pays the taxes, the insurance, the maintenance, the management, all the expenses involved with the building, which means that your rent is truly your rent. And inflationary environments like this, where all of that stuff's exploding and going up, it isn't something you can pass through in multifamily. It is something that gets that is expected to be passed through in industrial. So I think that balancing a portfolio is important. Um, you know, we've done a lot of industrial over the years. We're seeing the need for more industrial. We're seeing the need for more multifamily. It's just easier now to finance and, and complete an industrial project versus a multifamily project. And we've we've really embraced that, that, you know, you need to go where the demand of the market is, but you also yeah. need to stay balanced in your portfolio so that you're not sitting there in a situation where you're all multifamily, you're all on adjustable rate debt, and now you have a ton of problems. Where's some stability in what you're doing? Love that. Shannon, uh, favorite book you can pass down to our listeners? You know, my favorite book lately, let's go with that. Um, yes. I do read quite a bit, but uh, the one that I've, I've really enjoyed for the last year is uh, the, the book by Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Oh, yeah, I love I spy that. stories, right? So I love the yeah. way he takes yeah, and yeah. talks about, you know, what he did in the FBI and then how that applies to business. But it's, it's full of great principles and it's a good read. Have you listened to it on Audible? 
I have. I've done it. Yeah, I've done it's both. Good. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Good on it's not, it, I mean, it's, you know, I have to, I have to read to really retain, Yeah. but, I, but you're not the first person that said, listen to it on audible. And I did. And it's like, Oh my God, this is really good. Uh, yeah. D- David Goggins, his book, um, unstoppable. Uh, is it, is that what it is? Uh, no, that's not right. No, it's not. Anyways, it, I, uh, that's a great book on Audible because he goes into these little stories and breaks out and yeah, um, yeah. So, anyways, um, okay. Last question: um, What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Three pillars. You know, three pillars of wealth creation. Uh, first of all, is your health. I mean, health is wealth. We've heard that. Um, you have to take care of yourself. You have to show up in peak condition, whatever that is for you, that needs to continue to be improving. The other is you are the value of your network. So if you're hanging around with less stands, with people that are Netflix and chilling every weekend, that's who you're going to become. Look at hanging around and being a part of the people group that is elevating you, not dragging you down. And the third one, for me, the pillar of wealth is integrity. If you don't have integrity in mind, body, spirit, and in your business dealings, you're never going to be, you're never going to have the capacity to create wealth because you don't have the capacity to, to be honest and, and to follow through with the things that you're asked for. So yeah. for me, it's, it's absolutely your health, it's your peers, and it's your integrity. Yeah. And even if you have low integrity, maybe you can create wealth short-term, but it, yeah. it's not a long-term game Yeah, if, if you don't have that. And the book by David Goggins, by the way, is Can't Hurt Me. Yeah. Um, I, I, so. You and I both Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I got to figure that so, out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, awesome. Shannon, look, really appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Uh, this has been a fun conversation and, and I definitely appreciate you. How can our listeners get in touch with you learn more about what you got going on? You know, easiest thing to do is just shannonrobnet.com. Uh, you'll find all my socials uh, are there. You can find us on Facebook and all the usual places, but easiest place is just shannonrobnet.com. Job site cameras are there. Deals we've got are there. Uh, there's even a link to my calendar if you want to uh, chat. Maybe there's something I can help you out with. Maybe a 35-year-old perspective on the real estate market can get you over the hump of where you're stuck. I love it. Shannon, again, Appreciate it. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes. You have a fantastic rest of the day. Thanks, Todd. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, Give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. It's a rating and review. Just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. 
and, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go up to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.